0: hey everyone i'm jim ambusky and this is conversations at the washington library the american revolution dismembered a protestant empire in the years during and after the war states disestablished their churches old and new denominations flourished and americans enshrined religious freedom into their state and federal constitutions but claiming religious freedom in a democracy was not the same as enjoying it in the republic's early years joseph smith who founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and his Mormon brethren learned all too well the difference between ideal and reality. In Missouri and elsewhere, Smith and his fellow Mormons faced persecution for their beliefs, yet maintained faith that American democracy would help right these wrongs. But as it became clear that state and federal officials would not intervene, Smith arrived at a bold conclusion. He would run for president in 1844 on one of the most radical platforms in American history. On today's show, Dr. Spencer W. McBride joins me to talk about Smith, Mormonism, and the politics of religion in the early republic. McBride is the author of the new book, Joseph Smith for President, The Prophet, The Assassins, and the Fight for American Religious Freedom, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. McBride is Associate Managing Historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project and creator and host of The First Vision, a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. He helps us wrap up season five of Conversations. We're going on summer hiatus to record new episodes and to finish a new podcast series about the enslaved community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. So thanks for listening these past few months and now let's promote Joseph Smith for president with Dr. Spencer W. McBride. Spencer, when I was reading your book, I I had to think back to my undergraduate days and even my graduate school days, where of course you had to do a lot of reading about all of American history. I'm an early Americanist, but of course I had to read a lot on the 19th century, and I read about the Second Great Awakening and millennialism and the rise of evangelical culture in the early United States. But I confess I had not read a whole lot about Mormonism. So your book was a welcome opportunity to do that, and I'm very pleased that we can introduce that to some of the listeners out there who may not have had much knowledge about the history of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, or his presidential campaign. Let's dive into it then a little bit. By looking at Joseph Smith's early life, I mean, who was this guy who became the central figure of Mormonism in the early 19th century? Yeah, you know, I think it's easy when people
1: think about a prominent figure that is Joseph Smith. He has one of the most common names you could imagine for an American, Joseph (laughs) Smith, uh, yet he leads this really uncommon life. Joseph Smith's story is is fairly typical for a long time in that he's born to a relatively impoverished family living in Vermont and and the series of economic disruptions caused them to move a lot. And then finally, in 1816, 1817, his family's part of this Yankee migration when just hundreds of thousands of New Englanders leave New England and go to Western New York where land is plentiful, where they can start over again where they feel they have a better chance at economic stability. And that brings Joseph Smith to New York. And it's in that space that the second great awakening and the revivalism that's associated with that movement is in its highest concentration. And so Joseph Smith moves to this place where religion's very much on the mind. He attends religious meetings and starts wondering about his soul as a teenage boy, Uh, wonders about the state of his soul. Which church should I join? He's looking at these Christian denominations. And the way he tells it in his history is he goes into the woods to pray. He has a vision of deity and is told to join none of the churches. Latter-day Saints think of this moment as the first vision because it's the first in in a series of visions that Joseph Smith reports to the men and women interested in his, his activities. And, and ultimately this string of divine encounters leads to The formation of a new church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as it's known today. A book of scripture called the Book of Mormon, which Latter-day Saints, who who are Christians, use in conjunction with the Holy Bible. And and so it becomes a strain, not so much Protestant Christianity, but a restorationist Christianity, where they believe that they are restoring the primitive church from Jesus' time in the New Testament. And, and, And so Joseph Smith is not the only one caught up in religious excitement at this time. But rather than joining them with the Methodists or the Presbyterians, uh, he starts a new church that is presented as the Primitive Church of Christ.
0: Well, how should we think about this Second Great Awakening in contrast to the First Great Awakening? I mean, it seems like there's similar things going on. In the 1740s, there's this huge sense of evangelicalism. There's these big camp revivals where people are hearing and flocking to hear people like George Whitefield in open air and overcome with spiritualism and feeling a closer connection to God in ways that they weren't getting from their ministers in a regular church. Why does this impulse emerge again in the early 19th century? that creates the foundation for something that Smith and his adherents are looking for.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, historians disagree on this. And I think some of the major claims aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So, for instance, some argue that the democratization of American society that followed the American Revolution led to a democratized view of religion, where men and women could have more say in their approach to salvation, especially in Christianity. I, I should say not just religion mm-hmm. in general. That's such a broad term. Um, but with Christianity, they they're looking for a much more individualized path. They're looking to they're looking less and less to elite um, university trained clergymen, whereas a regular person, a person like Joseph Smith, could read the Bible, become inspired, and begin preaching religion. And more and more, this is acceptable and more and more churches are being led, not by the elite, but by very common uh, men. And so one explanation for why this is happening in this time is it's part of the democratization of American society. Interestingly, some historians have argued kind of a, a different approach, that the instability, the insecurity of the early American republic. You've taken off the structure of monarchy and of the British Empire and of a state-established religions, Mm -hmm. the political situation, the economic situation is so unstable in early America that a lot of these religious leaders take advantage of it, essentially. They see the insecurity among the American people, and religion is presented as an answer to that, and so Americans flock to the pews. Church membership rises uh, at an extraordinarily high rate, And, and the number of denominations multiplies. And, and, and once marginalized denominations such as the Methodist uh, and the Baptist just explode and become much more mainstream and much more acceptable in, in American Christianity. And so historians often debate these kind of two sides. I don't know how mutually exclusive they actually are. I was are. going to
0: ask you where you came down on this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it depends on the day. I think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I, I read one side, I'm like, yeah, they're right. And then I read another side and and and, and maybe there's a little bit of both. I, I think that's an ongoing conversation we're having as historians.
0: Or <laughs> well, in other words, it's complicated. That, that's right. Favorite thing that we like to go to. Well, you know, there's all this religious fracturing as you were talking about Methodists and Baptists, and, and they're all participating in this revivalism and the spiritual awakening. Tell us a little bit more about the establishment of the Mormon Church as it rests in Missouri before... Well, actually, probably even at the moment they began to congregate there, it sounds like they ran into trouble.
1: So the Latter-day Saints had a polarizing effect in the United States. Um, Many people had the same questions Joseph Smith had. They were wondering about their souls and they were wondering, they were unsatisfied with the religious status quo. They were unsatisfied with the Protestant Christian churches competing for their membership. And they wanted the primitive Christian church. And they believed that Joseph Smith was presenting that to them. And so a number of people flocked to Mormonism very early on. But it also instantly had its critics. People that thought they were too... Reliant on the idea of Joseph Smith as a prophet, right? Joseph Smith wasn't just the president of the church. His followers viewed him as a prophet, similar to Moses in the Old Testament, or or even a role, an administrative role like Peter is seen to have had in the New Testament. And so this was controversial. A man who claims that he has spoken with God and speaks not just as a religious leader, but as a prophet claims of continuing revelation from God. And this leads to problems. And eventually the Latter-day Saints moved to Ohio, to uh, Kirtland near, uh, it's now a suburb of Cleveland. But eventually they believe that Missouri is where they need to gather. So a lot of these converts to Mormonism would relocate and they'd move to be with their fellow Latter-day Saints. And Joseph Smith taught that Missouri was where the second coming of Jesus Christ prophesied in in the Bible was going to occur and that him and his followers were to go there and to build a city and to prepare themselves and the world for that event. This brings problems, severe problems for the, for the community. The Latter-day Saints are gathering. So they're a religious minority. But when you gather in one location, you have an effect on the economics and the politics of that location. And so in Missouri, all of a sudden, this religious minority is a majority in their county. And their non-Mormon neighbors say, whoa, hold on. We are going to be at an economic, we're going to be at a political disadvantage in our county with these Mormons coming in. And so they gather together. To form a mob and and the way that mobocracy works so often in early America is they don't just grab their pitchforks and and, and torches as we might imagine, though sometimes they did. Often they met together to justify their actions and they essentially write this declaration calling Mormonism a, a fake religion. Essentially, they don't deserve protection of religious freedom and that they're a threat to our economics and our politics and we are going to drive them out of the county. And this happens in Jackson County, Missouri. And then they move to another county in Missouri and it gets even worse there. And at this point, they're determined to drive them from the state altogether. And in fact, the governor of Missouri declares in an executive order that really challenges our kind of celebratory notions of American religious freedom. The governor of a state says the Mormons must be exterminated or driven from the state. And that's what happens. And the Mormons are expelled from
0: Missouri and become religious refugees in Illinois. points already in terms of religious freedom and how it intersects with this idea of democracy. But something you just said a moment ago about revelation, and it got me thinking, why is direct revelation such a problem or so threatening to a lot of people in this period? I mean, millions of people then and now pray every day, hoping to hear the word of God, or at least a voice in their head that gives them comfort and believes is God himself or herself. And why is direct revelation seen as such a threatening
1: thing? That is a good question. And it's a big question. I'll give you kind of a short answer. This is a time that many Americans still believed in miracles. Many Americans were reading accounts of men and women who went into the woods to pray and claimed to have visions, including visions of God. And so it's not that there was among many that there was this belief that miracles had ceased or revelation had ceased. Although some did believe that there were divides within Protestantism on this very issue. But often these hit on different trends going on in the United States. For instance, there was a competitive element. The Mormons are drawing people away from Protestant churches, right? Joseph Smith didn't just go into the, say, I went into the woods, I had a vision, and God told me to be a Methodist. He said, God told me that all the churches are wrong that they're all preaching a form of Jesus Christ's gospel, but it's all corrupted. And so you're hit on some nerves there when you say things like that. And also the the fact that the Mormons would gather together and live, they at least attempted to live this kind of economic communitarianism to, to different degrees during, during the lifetime of, of their communities. This runs contrary to a lot of the notions of American democracy at this time. So all of a sudden you take, some would criticize as superstition, a belief in revelation and miracles, and others might accept that, but you pair that with what are seen as anti-democratic actions, right? Something that seems a threat to American society as it's developing,
0: and all of a sudden, it becomes
1: very intolerable uh, for for many Americans.
0: What does the idea of religious freedom mean to most Americans in this period, the religious freedom is established in the Bill of Rights. We can talk about whether or not that applies to the states here in just a moment. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. But what do most Americans think about the state of religious freedom and the guarantees of religious freedom? Yeah, you know, by the mid-1830s,
1: every state has essentially declared in one form or another, usually in their constitution, religious freedom. But religious freedom is still very much this idea of, it's an idea created by Protestants for Protestants. And there's been some great scholarship lately on on how the American Revolution changed the nature of British imperial Christianity or I think Christianity in the British Empire and what happens after the scaffolding of empire is lifted. Uh, a shout out to my friend and fellow scholar, Kate Carte, who's written about this. I'm um, talking to her next week, actually, on the live stream about it. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And what we see, though, is that a lot of Americans are hesitant or unsure what the bounds of religious freedom are. Some states are very good at extending religious freedom to their Jewish populations. Um, some not so much. Same with Catholics. But often they're hesitant with these, Even there's even more hesitancy with these smaller religious movements. Um, Mormons, shakers, any number of these kind of utopian alternative religious groups that rise up in the 19th century. And it's almost this idea they see their persecution or their extra legal violence against these groups not as religious persecution because they deem them pretend religions. So essentially, how do you want to justify what you're doing by saying I'm not persecuting a religious minority because they're not really religious? And so it's this tough situation. Most states, at least in their laws, protect and guarantee religious freedom, but in practice don't. Well, there's that tension
0: between idealism and reality that I find particularly interesting in your book. And it struck me, at least early on, that Joseph Smith had a great deal of faith in the American democratic system, or at least in its aspirations to be a more democratic system. What should we know about his faith in that democracy?
1: When Joseph Smith gets involved in politics, it's reluctantly... And and anyone that's read any amount of American political history in this time knows that every politician like begins by saying, I'm not political. I don't want power. The people are calling me to do this, right? Like that's a that's a pretty standard line, even if they are absolutely (laughs) ambitious and they want the power and they are political. But I think Joseph Smith really wasn't. I think genuinely he wanted to just live with his followers and lead them and be left alone. But when they weren't able to do that, when they were forced out of Missouri, Joseph Smith had to engage in politics. And so in 1839, he goes to Washington, D.C., and he has this very idealistic notion of how the American government works. He thinks he can just talk with the president, and he does, and then he can just petition Congress. And they're going to see just how outrageous Missouri's actions against them were and that they will correct it. And Joseph Smith faces reality when he gets to D.C., these men who are leading the government in the White House and in Congress are playing partisan politics They're playing political hardball. It's not simply about ideals. It's ideals when they're convenient. And it sounds like a complaint we could make today because in that sense, it hasn't really changed. But for Joseph Smith, it was this kind of ideal shattering moment. He realized I can't just cite this, invoke this idea of religious freedom in the American founding that, that seems to be there. And he realized it's not. And we have to actually play political hardball to get help.
0: Yeah, it was really remarkable. I mean, you opened the book, and this isn't giving any away with that encounter with Martin Van Buren and with 1839. And he, he goes in expecting that uh, I have a grievance and I'm going to go to the government to redress that and then it will be OK. And it almost immediately becomes clear that, that that's not going to happen. And one of the fascinating points I think you raise in in your book is the American Revolution is fought against a centralized imperial power 3,000 miles away. And that even though they create a stronger central government with the constitution, most Americans probably agree to the late 18th and early 19th century that the states are the best repositories of a citizen's rights. It seems like Smith very quickly discovers that, especially with their experiences in Missouri, that that is not the case, that they're they might actually have to appeal to a, say, a higher power to defend their rights. Yeah. And I, th- I write in the
1: book and that this is almost one of like the forgotten, this is a forgotten piece of constitutional history. And maybe it's part of our society's collective historical amnesia, or maybe it's willfully forgotten, but that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the individual states before the 14th Amendment. The idea, as you said, was the states are the best position to protect the rights of uh, men and women in the United States. The Bill of Rights was designed to protect the people from having their rights abridged or infringed upon by the federal government. That's what the Bill of Rights did. And so Joseph Smith very quickly sees this as a problem because what if the state is the one that is leading the mobs? What if the state is the one that is abridging a group's rights? There needs to be an apparatus in the federal government, the ability of the federal government to protect minority groups when states fail to do so. So Joseph Smith becomes a member of this vanguard of people calling for the Bill of Rights to apply to the individual states long before the Civil War, long before the 14th Amendment. And what's really fascinating is Who else is on that vanguard? It's a Catholic priest down in uh, New Orleans. It's the Shakers in New York. It's these religious minority groups who are saying, hey, we love our country. We love the Constitution, but hey, there's something wrong. Uh, Essentially, we can understand why the founders designed it the way they did, but our lived experience is saying,
0: it's not working. Let's make some adjustments so that it can. Besides the meeting with Van Buren or the meeting with Van Buren that didn't go the way that they had hoped, how else are Smith and the Mormon leadership attempting to compel the government to live up to the best of American ideals? After Van Buren uh, denies to, or declines to help Joseph Smith,
1: they take their case to Congress and the U.S. Senate actually has a committee hearing. Not specifically on the Missouri uh, persecutions, as they would call them, but whether or not Congress has jurisdiction in this matter. Can Congress do anything to help a persecuted minority when the states are the persecutors? And they decide unanimously that they can't. And that's as far as Joseph Smith's petitioning efforts ever got. He continues to petition Congress almost every single year from 1839, 1840 until his death a few years later but the petition never gets as far as it did that one time. And it becomes very clear to him that there's a structural problem in the Constitution and in the government's reading and application of the Constitution that is allowing this persecution to take place.
0: Love this idea that this is a sort of forgotten history of American constitutional law that you said it a moment ago. And we'll talk in just a minute about Smith's solution for really getting things done. But as they're petitioning Congress, as you said, they, they've been driven out of Missouri. Where do they go and how do they try to rebuild their lives? Yeah, so they cross the Mississippi River in the dead of winter. There's these harrowing
1: stories of barefoot children, men and women leaving you know, bloody footprints in the snow. And, and they cross the Mississippi River into Illinois and the people of Illinois take them in as, as religious refugees. If the story of what happened to the Mormons in Missouri makes you feel really distressed about this episode of of American history, the feel good story comes when they enter Illinois and the people of Illinois take them in and help them despite their religious differences. That won't last. But in that moment, it's kind of a heartwarming story. And then the, the Mormons, they buy a large tract of land on this big bend in the Mississippi River and they start building a new city. And it builds up really quickly so that within a couple years, it rivals Chicago as the biggest city in Illinois. And they design it, though, in a very interesting way because they're going to continue to petition the federal government for protection, but they realize their chances of getting it are slim or it may take a long time. So they need to design a city that can protect their rights. And they do this by passing a very liberal charter with the Illinois State Assembly. The charter gives them an extraordinary level of rights to prevent outsiders from coming in to arrest Mormons, to forming a, a city militia, which is a part of the state militia. It's 2,500 men at a time when the standing army of the United States was about 8,000 men. So it's one of the biggest militias in the United States. And and they designed this city to protect their rights, but also declare the rights of religious freedom for any who enter the city. Uh, and specifically, not just Christians, They specifically list in that ordinance um, Jews and, and Mohammedans, as they call them, which was a term often used for Muslims. Now, how many Muslims and Jews were going to venture to Nauvoo, Illinois? Not that many, but it's this principle that they're proclaiming. And the reason that the Illinois state legislature goes along with this is that state was so evenly divided between Whigs and Democrats that the Mormons, though a minority, they often voted together they would be the kingmakers and both sides wanted them. So you have Abraham Lincoln, this up and coming wig uh, who's in the state assembly. He supports the Mormon's efforts. Stephen A. Douglas is there in the state government. He supports it as a Democrat, right? Both sides are trying to court the Mormon vote, seeing that they're going to be the difference makers. And the Mormons recognize that. And they say, Hey, we can use our voting as a block. We can use our, our, our political influence to ensure the protection
0: of our rights. As they're doing this, the 1844 presidential election is approaching and Smith writes, was it five letters to the five different candidates, basically saying, what are you going to do for us? We've had these episodes, we've had, we've suffered these abuses. How are you going to protect us? Is this another indication that maybe Smith thinks that there's a chance that the federal magistrate chief executive, as they might've called him besides the president back in those days, could potentially take the side of the, the Mormon community and try to give them some relief for their suffering?
1: I think he hopes
0: so. And
1: of course, this is issues of what powers did the president actually have at this time. But even if he can't do it by by proclamation uh, or by executive order, that if a president has so much sway with Congress and, and his party in Congress, that it may be helpful. But what also is happening by 1844 is things are getting bad for the Mormons again. This block voting practice that they thought would secure them their rights has ended up alienating many people in Illinois. And it appears that what had happened in Missouri is getting set to happen again in Illinois. So it's in this context, this desperation that Joseph Smith writes um, men whose names political historians know really well. John C. Calhoun, uh, Henry Clay, Martin Van Buren, Lewis Cass, Richard Mentor Johnson, writes them all the same letter uh, 2 don't reply. And and Calhoun and and, uh, Cass both kind of essentially write the same reasoning. Hey, we sympathize with you, but citing states' rights, they say "Ah, the federal government can do nothing in this case. And that really irritates Joseph Smith. But I think the person, and this is just my opinion, the person whose letter irritated him more was Henry Clay. No one in the history of of the United States has ever wanted to be president as badly as Henry Clay did. And Henry Clay writes the most politician letter ever, essentially saying, hey, I sympathize with you. I feel for you. I'm not going to make any promises because I don't want to be held to them when I get elected. And so Joseph Smith, (laughs) you know, John C. Calhoun and Louis Cass wrote principled letters Joseph Smith doesn't agree with their principles one bit, but Henry Clay just wrote kind of the most unprincipled politician answer, but all of them irritate him. And yeah, that's when he decides we need to look elsewhere for a candidate to support. What's the solution then? Who's the candidate they're going to back? Well, they, they decide none of these candidates are going to help them. And so Joseph Smith is going to
0: be that independent candidate. Let's talk a little bit about presidential campaign politics then. In Washington's era, of course, you, you didn't run for president. You stood for president and people did the work for you of campaigning for you or supplying liquor, things like that. Uh, you, you didn't actively run as people do now and give stump speeches across the country. What was it like to run for president? What was the political process in the 1840s that, that Smith is about to embark on?
1: Yeah, and and Smith is actually declaring his candidacy at a moment when that is changing and on the cusp of becoming what we know it today an era of stump speeches and actively canvassing the country as a candidate. Um, Like you said, in the earliest days of, of the United States, people were ambitious. They wanted to be president. But the worst thing you could do would be to declare that you wanted it, right? You masked your ambition. And we were getting to a point in the late 1830s and early 1840s that candidates weren't doing that as much. They'd always relied on surrogates to campaign for them. But increasingly, candidates were directing their surrogates. So they're not going out and making stump speeches yet, but they are having an active role in running their own campaigns. And we were just a few years away here in 1844 from when they would actively campaign. And Joseph Smith has an advantage. I mean, he's running from the outside. He's not going to win. And I think most observers knew that right off the bat. But he has something that other outside candidates don't have. He has hundreds of experienced Mormon missionaries who know how to travel the country and preach religion. And he dispatches them to travel the country and preach politics to campaign for him. And so we have this very kind of unique innovation in presidential campaigning with Joseph Smith at a time when presidential campaigning itself is evolving.
0: How successful is that canvassing? Tell us a little bit about the deployment of those missionaries, not just evangelize the word of God, but to evangelize this idea of American democracy as it should be.
1: Yeah, and it's a fascinating story. These electionary missionaries, as they become known. They meet with some success, not, not a ton, but their efforts are what's really extraordinary in, in terms of the history. A lot of them go to states where they were originally from. If they converted in Pennsylvania, they still had friends and family in Pennsylvania. Let's go preach politics to them. Some go to the Deep South, though. And that, and we'll talk about Joseph Smith's um, campaign policies later, I, I assume. But he has this pamphlet that they're distributing calling for the abolition of slavery. And a lot of these missionaries run into mobs, not because they're Mormons, but because they're distributing a pamphlet calling for abolition. And that gets them into trouble. But one of the most fascinating accounts is Brigham Young, who who would be Joseph Smith's successor. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) He leads this (laughs) meeting in Boston and there's this this campaign meeting is met with hecklers. And so the police are called and the meeting ends when the hecklers start fighting, not with the Mormons. The Boston hecklers start fighting with the police and there's a brawl. And and so, you know, they're in this environment. But I think and, and maybe my favorite kind of fun fact about this is the Mormons establish a campaign news. Paper in Manhattan, right there on Printer's Row. And it's called The Prophet. And the idea is we can print all this campaign information and other newspapers will pick it up and run with it. And, and so if you want your most esoteric, fun, political fact about this is a Mormon electionary missionary named Sam Brannan is running The Prophet newspaper with his own printing press. And years later, he takes that printing press to San Francisco and that same press, that same person prints the first news of discovery of gold in California. So I don't know if you want to include that, but that's kind of the the fun esoteric political history fact about this uh, campaign effort with these missionaries.
0: No, that's great. I mean, it's certainly going to be useful to cocktail party too down the road. <laughs> You're going to wow them with what you know. <laughs> well, well, tell us about that platform then, because as you mentioned, there, you know, he's calling for the abolition of slavery, which is you know, might be appealing to some ardent anti-slavery and abolitionist-minded folks. Certainly, it's not going to play well in the South. But it sounds like he's got some other things on there that may be a. Uh, Equally as controversial in some respects. The way I've said it in the book and and elsewhere is Joseph Smith
1: was driven to the presidential race by one issue, empower the federal government to protect religious minorities. But he wasn't a one issue candidate. He very quickly puts together this kind of robust, innovative, sometimes naive, but usually pretty radical political um, position. He calls for the abolition of slavery, but with a very unique approach of this wide scale plan of paid emancipation. The federal government would purchase the freedom of enslaved men, women and children and to pay for it. They would use the proceeds from the sales of Western lands. So essentially, the federal government would purchase the freedom of enslaved people and slavery would be done. Again, kind of wishful thinking, but but that's his very pragmatic approach to it. He calls for stabilizing the American economy by establishing a new national bank, which had been a hot button issue since Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson were in Washington's cabinet. No different. But he's calling for a different type of national bank. No one's going to get rich off this bank. The men who run it will be paid a uh, per diem of $2 a day. Yeah. Well, it was funny when you were saying $2 a day, it sounded like, oh, well, these are graduate students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, And I don't know where he gets this number $2 a day, because when he calls for lowering Congress's pay, it's also $2 a day. And in his mind, he says, that's how much a farmer makes. And so essentially in Joseph's mind, $2 a day, it's a rhetorical tool. That's like the honest wage of a farmer, I guess, in his mind. So a national bank that's going to stabilize the economy of the United States. He calls for the expansion of the United States, of annexing Texas, of taking all of Oregon. And Oregon was a a territory that was contested with Great Britain. And even says when the time is right, the United States should expand into Canada and Mexico. Uh, He calls for the end of prisons. He's calling for criminal justice reform. And and penitentiaries were this kind of new thing that were springing up all over the, the country. This idea... That they were going to reform prisoners with solitary confinement and hard labor. And Joseph Smith is not the only one, but he's a loud voice saying, Hey, this isn't working. We're actually creating a permanent criminal class. We need our criminal justice system to actually reform those who are convicted of crimes rather than essentially making them unfit to re-enter society when their their imprisonment's done. He calls for the end of imprisonment for debt. Uh, his father had been sent to debtor's prison when he was younger for an $8 debt. And he realizes that debtor's prison just continues cycles of poverty. And so it's this is very progressive, this very, in some ways, radical um, approach to some of the problems that are plaguing the United States. But again, at the heart of this, at the heart of his campaign and his platform is that the federal government needs to be empowered to protect minority groups when states fail to do so.
0: And, and that is at the very heart of it. As you say, it is a rather radical platform. And it strikes me that there is almost something for everyone in there. I mean, the expansion into Oregon and Texas, you know, that ticks the Democrats' box. Uh, the Abolition of slavery, well, that'll bring the Whigs into the fold. And then it seems like, theoretically, uh, with or the guarantee of religious freedom, uh, that'll get you the Catholic vote, and, then, and perhaps the Jewish vote as well, and, and other uh, religious minorities. How do people respond to this platform?
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of people ignore it because here's, the. I mean, how do we respond to kind of the long shot candidates today? We ignore sure, them yeah. or maybe we find some amusement in them, right? They're, they're putting forward some really cool ideas. We're amused by those ideas. Maybe we're inspired by those ideas, but we recognize that this guy doesn't have a chance. And, and that's often what happens with Joseph Smith. He's either ignored, maybe some people wrestle with some of his ideas, but no one's taking him seriously as a candidate. On the flip side of that, some people are hostile to what he's saying, but the hostility is less that they think he can actually be elected, but they see a danger in a religious leader seeking political office and specifically the presidency, Uh, that the separation of religion and politics, which is different than the separation of church and state, but the separation of religion and politics is needed and necessary in this moment. What happens when the leader of a, a religious minority group seeks political office? What is at risk? And so many people, you know, will mock Joseph Smith uh, and his campaign, but you can see it, the, the mockery is a thin veneer to larger concerns. Not that Joseph Smith is going to be elected, but what if someone like Joseph Smith one day was elected? What does that mean for? Uh, American democracy. And 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 so there's this very real concern behind what's what seems like lighthearted mockery. So, yeah, Joseph Smith, some of his ideas are engaged with, but largely he's not a serious contender.
0: Is this playing into some of the same ideas of, of demagoguery that people were so worried about Andrew Jackson with? Uh, not that Jackson was a great orator or anything like that, but he could persuade people through his own personal form of charisma. I think so
1: to an extent. Joseph Smith, in many ways, is a populist candidate. He's saying we've had Whig presidents, we've had Democratic presidents, our country's in decline. We need someone coming from the outside. And he's not the first to say this, and he's certainly not the last. But even as the populist political playbook is being written, Joseph Smith, in many ways, is helping to write it. How do you run from the outside of the party machinery? No one's going to win at that time without the party machinery. But he's kind of saying, hey, the parties don't have your interest in mind. He's presenting himself as a man of the people. And while that's exciting to many, to those in power, it's a very scary thing when someone comes from that populist angle because they may be sincere in their populism, but they could also have sinister motives in their populism. I'm not saying that was the case for Joseph Smith. But that is kind of the ongoing tradition of populism in American politics. Some see it as a good because it's a, it's giving voice to people's concerns. Others see it as very dangerous because people could use populism to do some very nefarious things. Sure, sure. How does it end for him? Well, for Joseph Smith, he ends up being assassinated. He's assassinated in June 1844 before the November election. He has the distinction that nobody wants of being the first assassinated presidential candidate. Now, the asterisk next to that is he was not assassinated because he was running for president. He was assassinated because of some local political issues going on and some of his actions he took as mayor of Nauvoo. And and ultimately, a mob stormed the prison or the jail in which he was being held and shot him and his brother. He was assassinated while running for president, but he was not assassinated because he was running
0: for president. Well, folks who are interested in those local politics and how it all comes to an end should definitely pick up your book. Spencer, I'm I'm wondering why you chose to write this book in the first place. You've written a previous book on American religion. What attracted you to this topic? Yeah,
1: so I'm forever fascinated by the interplay of religion and politics and that's our american tradition from the revolution on we debate the extent to which religion should be involved in our politics all the while mixing religion in our politics it's our ongoing tradition the, the debate itself is our tradition and i work as a historian and documentary editor for the joseph smith paper so i spend my days with in the archives with joseph smith's surviving documents And I was going through all these political documents and I began to see kind of a bigger story. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints today know that Joseph Smith, their founding prophet, ran for president, but they don't really know why. They don't really know if he had a chance. I think most Americans have no knowledge that this happened. And I wanted to write about it not because he was a serious contender, but sometimes it's the people running from outside the status quo that shine a light on inequalities. On structural problems in our country. And I think Joseph Smith does that. I think even people who aren't interested in Mormonism as a religion or Joseph Smith as a religious leader can find in his story kind of this moment of someone saying, hey, I love my country, but there's something wrong. And I think it shines a light on some of the structural issues at play in our lack of religious freedom. We like to celebrate the level of religious freedom in the United States. And to our country's credit, We do have, in many cases, a high level of religious freedom, but we're fooling ourselves if we tell ourselves that it's perfect and that it has been perfect and total from the beginning of the country. And Joseph Smith's story really highlights that religious freedom has never been universal in the United States in practice. And Joseph Smith was saying it never will be until we've empowered our government
0: leaders to ensure that it is. Well, I was going to ask you about the relationship between your editorial work and the book, and you've answered that. And when I was reading your book, I very much was thinking about the constant tension even in today's world, certainly today's world, between our highest ideals and where we come close to them, but also where we fall very short. And that struggle continues even today. It's certainly fascinating to read about it in Smith's time. Besides your book, though, you've also got several other audio projects that allow listeners or interested parties to learn more about the history of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, and the 19th century world in which they live. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast efforts?
1: As an academic historian, So much of my writing and so much of our publication of the Joseph Smith Papers is first and foremost for scholars. You know, we we are publishing rather dense collections of documents. They're not the things that most people read cover to cover. Yet for many practicing Latter-day Saints today, they want to know. What the Joseph Smith Papers project is turning up? What are we discovering as we dive deep into all of Joseph Smith's surviving documents? And so these podcasts became a public history approach. Let's take the very scholarly academic work of the Joseph Smith Papers project and let's find ways to make it more accessible to a general public. We need advanced degrees in history to do this project, but we want to make it so that you don't need an advanced degree in history to engage and learn from it. And so the, the approach we took was to make what we're calling podcast miniseries instead of an ongoing podcast for this audience. We said, let's take a specific moment in Joseph Smith's life, a specific event. And let's take a deep dive and and present it almost like a radio documentary, uh, kind of an NPR narrative style. We were influenced by Serial and and Dolly Parton's America was an influence. (laughs) And so essentially, I just listened to tons of NPR and tried to imitate the styles that I liked. And we took six episodes and we presented Joseph Smith's first vision, not a did he or didn't he see what he said he saw. Rather, let's understand the context in which it happened. Let's understand the impact of that vision. Because religious history isn't about proving or disproving spiritual claims. It's about understanding them. And we did that. And we didn't know what the response was going to be. We kind of put it out there. Let's see what happens. And we were blown away. We were blown away by how many people listened, by how many people wrote to us, that we decided to do it again with another event in Joseph Smith's life. And that was successful enough. We're doing it for a third. So it's been really fun to see podcasting as public history, which you know very well yourself. If our goal as historians is to reach the public, we need to reach them wherever they are. And we reach some of them in books. We reach some of them through video. We reach some of them through audio. As public historians, we need to be in the spaces where people are.
0: And so podcasting is one way of doing that. No, I totally agree. I also totally agree on Dolly Parton's America. That's a fantastic show. And that, that is very much a model that people should follow. What's the third podcast you've got coming out? I don't think it's dropped yet, right?
1: No, it's coming out in October. It's on the building of the Nauvoo Temple. So, as Joseph Smith and the Mormons are building up this city in Illinois to protect their rights, they're also building this huge a house of worship, a temple. And and it's very much tied to developments in Mormon theology and, and the growth of the Mormon community. And so, we tell the story of this building by asking the question, what did this building mean to Mormons then? And what does it mean to Mormons today that this building has been reconstructed in Nauvoo? So, it's essentially telling all sorts of aspects of history through the life and history of a building. And and, and it's, it was really fun to make. This one's going to be eight episodes, so longer than our usual six. And one of the most exciting developments with it is, is it's being translated into Spanish and Portuguese. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a very global membership and ha- has a large number of members in Latin America. And so we want to see engage the interest of history podcasts outside of the United States. We know they work well in the United States. How well do they work when we translate them and present them um, to a global audience? And, and so we're very excited about that development. Stay tuned to find out whether or not it works. <laughs>
0: well, I'll be, I'm going to check in with you because uh, we have aspirations of our own and sort of a you know, transatlantic and, and international podcast. So I will be staying tuned and uh, I'll be bugging you about it. Well, Spencer, thanks very much. This, as I said at the top, this has been a real, real learning opportunity for me, and I'm sure it will be for the audience. And, and come back and see us uh, anytime. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambuske, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is "Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.